What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. We'll take you through the headlines, deals, buybacks, and continuing stimulus talks, sending stocks higher today, building on Friday's sharp gains. Will investors ride this rally into October? Plus, airlines in focus, a huge week for the sector, as furloughs and a Treasury decision on more aid approaches. We'll look at which companies have the most at stake and could take big hits to their bottom lines. And a big week for IPOs. Uber is back in London. The judge sides with TikTok and the hottest new investing app. But we begin with today's rally. Can I call it a monster rally, Dom? We're getting there up 527. Dom Chu has the numbers. It sure feels like a monster rally because it is a 500-point day upside for the Dow. The S&P up 54 points in the NASDAQ. 150 points. It continues that kind of recent trend of being the most volatile. The big upside moves and the big downside ones as well. Right now, the trailer, though, only up about one and a half percent. 11036. That's a key level to watch. That's the 50 day average price for the Nasdaq. It's trying to get above that. 3353, by the way, is the 50 day average price for the S&P 500. We are sitting there right now. So a pretty decent technical level to watch. That's why traders are interested in these particular levels. One other theme that's developing, call it a three day win streak for the bank stocks. Yes, we know they've been beaten up all kinds of ways this year. But still, if you look at the bank ETF, it's down 37 percent so far just on a year to date basis. But that move higher that we're seeing in some of these stocks today in the financial sector overall it really does mean that maybe there is some kind of buy the dip mentality on some of these banks. Remember, three day win streak for some of these ETFs attract the banks. And then merger Monday, it's in shale oil. It's been beaten up a lot. And two of the more mid-scale players, Devon Energy and WPX, are combining. Devon will buy WPX. This merger of equals is leading to these particular upside moves. But remember, these stocks have been very, very beaten up over the course of the last couple of years. This is very much a deal, Kelly, that shows the shale industry in America probably needs to consolidate in order to stay alive. That deal today, a big one for sure. I'll send things back over to you. It's a great point, Dom. Thank you very much, sir. Now, one driving force during the month's previous sell-off has been concern about those stimulus talks in Washington. Investors are waiting for movement on another stimulus plan and still waiting. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sounding optimistic in the last hour about a deal. For more, let's bring in Elon Moy, who's got the very latest for us. Elon? Well, Kelly Pelosi continued her optimistic tone over the weekend into today. She just spoke to our colleagues over at MSNBC and said that she spoke with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin yesterday briefly, and she alluded to the potential for another conversation happening today. She said that Democrats will be ready if and when the White House comes back to the table, but they're going to have to come back with a lot more money. Right now, Democrats are preparing their own $2.4 trillion offer, and they're trying to figure out exactly how to slice this pie. Pelosi has said that the need for some areas like education, small businesses, restaurants and airlines, 
those needs have grown, and that's going to mean there will need to be trade-off in some other sectors in order to keep the dollar figure within that $2.4 trillion price tag. Now, Democrats have their next conference call on Wednesday. That could be an opportunity for Pelosi to take the temperature of her members, find out where everybody stands. Pelosi did say that she's willing to put this bill on the floor if there is no deal. House Democrats could pass it on their own. However, she said that she is hopeful they can still find common ground with the administration. Back over to you. Elon, it was interesting. You know, we asked Eamon about this this morning, uh, you know, because it's interesting to me if we could get a, some kind of piecemeal deal going forward, like Larry Kudlow referenced. You know, he said we can do PPP or something for jobs. You know, we can do school aid. But Eamon said, you know, Pelosi doesn't want to do that because she'd give up her leverage for a bigger deal. And that's fine. But, in, in, you know, in terms of the art of politics, is that going to end up being the only way forward here? I, I'm curious how you're reading the tea leaves at this point as well. Yeah, I think what you see that's notable about the Democrats' plan is that it still includes all of the different pieces that they talked about back in May during the HEROES Act, and in fact, even more pieces with things like topping up PPP. So they are still adamant that they need to address all of the areas that they say uh, that there is need um, amongst their constituents. They are unwilling to just take this line item by line item. However, there is flexibility within the broader package to move some things around. For example, the state and local funding right now in the HEROES Act that the Democrats have passed, there's two years of funding. Maybe you take that down to one year. Those are some things that could be up for negotiation and could help bring down the dollar figure so that the White House and the Democrats are closer together. Yeah, interesting. Elon, appreciate it very much. Elon Moy for us. Let's turn back to the big rally today. Despite that, big tech is still on track to break a five-month win streak. And the sell-off follows a huge rally earlier in this year where we saw a big tech share of the S&P 500 hit a record level in August. So even with the drop, their weighting is still above the tech bubble's high in 2000. What is this telling us about the market? Joining me now, Art Hogan is chief market strategist at National Securities and Marianne Montaigne is portfolio manager at Gradient Investments. And it's great to see you both. Marianne, it's been a while. I'd like you to just kind of talk through your thinking about this market. And, you know, do you feel encouraged by the reset that we've had? And maybe that's what the strength this afternoon is telling us. Um, or, or do you think that, you know, we kind of need to to be more mindful of, uh, of what the next few months may bring us? Well, I think there's some rotation going on in the market, but we hit a level of support around 32.20 in the S&P 500, and we've bounced off of that. So that's a positive development. But we're starting to see some uh, rotation away from technology, which is very welcome as it moves toward energy, industrials, and financials today. And you like the med tech companies, I see, uh, along with a couple of other areas of the market. So we'll come back to that. But Art, uh, with a, a friendly hello to you as well, because it, it always feels like it's been a while now that we don't see any, each other in person at all. But um, so Marianne is basically saying, you know, look, we are seeing some encouraging signs under the hood here. Do you agree with that? Oh, ab absolutely. When we think about what had happened over the course of the uh, the 
end of August and into the first week of September, we were overbought in the NASDAQ, we were overbought in the S&P 500, and, and clearly RSIs were signaling that we needed to have a retracement. And so clearly, walking into September, which is a difficult month anyway, in an overbought scenario, was going to give us the kind of reaction we saw. Now, should we feel more comfortable about where we are now? I think that's also absolutely true. And I think that you and Mike Santoli had a great conversation this morning that said, that kind of culminated with, does this have to be a zero-sum game? If the economy starts to reopen and things get better, if we see the other side of this pandemic and a vaccine comes about, does tech need to sell off so the cyclicals get bought? I would say no. I think that I think that both, you know, having a barbell approach with both technology on one side and cyclical exposure on the other and then rebalancing that every couple of months has been a winning strategy and will continue to win. I don't think our use of technology is going to go down on the other side of the pandemic. And Marianne, I, mean, I totally take Art's point. I just want to talk about the action today for a moment. We've got energy, you know, banks, industrials, you know, we're looking to those segments of the market. And you're saying, look, even the Boeing news lately has turned a little bit more constructive. Do you think that's a big factor behind the change in tone that we're seeing here to kick things off this week? I do. You know, we've got the, yeah, we've got the FAA commissioner who's uh, willing to go out and fly that 737 MAX. And, uh, you know, that's the part of the process of getting the planes back up in the air. Um, I actually flew yesterday, and I was very surprised at how full the planes are. So I think the uh, general uh, economic conditions and people's tolerance, uh, safety precautions, are people are bringing people back into the economy. Um, and I think we can say that about restaurants as well, especially if we get this package that Pelosi is talking about. Uh, we could see more economic growth coming out of things, but I think people are willing to uh, go out and engage more than we've seen in the past several yeah. months. And you mentioned MedTech. I know you like Abbott, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, saying people are coming back out. You know, they're getting those procedures with the hospitals reopening. Before we go, Art, I just want to turn back to you and kind of talk about what could happen with stimulus from here. What do you think the market is currently pricing in? Is it no stimulus, skinny stimulus? You know, and what does that tell us about the kind of reactions we might see? Kelly, it's such a great question. I, I would say over the course of this summer, because of the, the rapid pace at which we got stimulus in the spring, we expected to see some package that looked something like $1.5 trillion. And the bid-ask spread was always pretty wide. But the, the assumption going through the summer months, July and into August, that we were going to get that in the month of August or at September at the latest. And then obviously life in Washington took over, and here we are now still battling to get this out the door. So I think the market has gone from pricing this in to saying there's zero chance we get this until after the election. So any positive news on that, which I think is essential, would be an upside surprise to this market right now. All right. And, you know, we'd take it. But again, maybe that's partly what's going on here. Maybe it would be uh, icing on top of the cake. We're up about 500 points. Art Hogan, Marianne Montaigne, thank you both very much for sharing your thoughts about the markets you. today. I'm going to take a quick break. Still coming up, it is a crucial week for the airline industry. It is battling for more government aid. It has 30,000 jobs on the line. We're going to look at the future of the industry and the names that could suffer the most. Plus, why one analyst says Netflix can pull off another price hike. And the implications, if it does, Netflix shares struggling to turn positive today. And it's a win for TikTok as the judge rules against the government's ban. We've got the very latest. It's all coming up right here on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Airline stocks feeling the wind beneath their wings today. American Airlines secured a $5.5 billion treasury loan, and that seems to be boosting the sector. You can see the shares are up 5 to 8% across the board. But the industry at large is still suffering. Passenger traffic is 70% below pre-pandemic levels. And while airlines are struggling to recover, an existential deadline is coming up. The $25 billion in aid that airlines receive through the CARES Act expires on Wednesday. Barring last-minute aid, more than 30,000 employees could be furloughed October 1st. The industry is urging Washington to extend relief through next March, but they're running out of options. We did get some news in the last hour that United Airlines says its pilots have accepted their pandemic recovery agreement to avoid imminent furloughs. With me now, CNBC's own Phil LeBeau. And Phil, so as I understand it, this is about three, these pilot jobs, about 3,000 yep. out of it. Is it about 16,000 that United has at stake? So while it's, you know, a good sign, this is... The, the minority of jobs that could be affected here, right? That's true. The, the, the deal is this in terms of the numbers. United has said, and they've said for some time, that they planned on slashing 16,000 jobs come Thursday, October 1st. 2850, 2,850 of those jobs were pilots who were scheduled to be furloughed, but the Pilots Union and United have just announced that they've worked out a deal. Essentially, the pilots will fly fewer hours, and this guarantees that there are no layoffs for the pilots, strictly the pilots we're talking about, through June of next year. The expectation being that there will be an increase in traffic by then and that they will not have to revisit this issue. But that's the agreement that was just announced. So United at this point, and one reason why the stock is moving higher, United will be furloughing fewer than expected employees, still furloughing about 13,000, certainly not good news for those employees. And then when you add in 19,000 at American and a number of other airlines that have not finalized how many employees may be furloughed, you're looking at somewhere between 35 and 50,000. And that's just a guesstimate at this point. We'll get a better sense by the end of the week. And Joe Denardi is with us as well now. He's managing director at Stiefel who covers the sector. He's on the phone. Joe, let me ask you, what are you telling, I mean, what, what do you expect to happen this week or imminently, if anything, to further support the airlines here? Or are we going to see this kind of job loss? Yeah, I think, I think the expectation at this point is that it's, it's, it's fairly likely that there will be an extension of, of payroll support, but the, the, the probability maybe is lower than it was a month ago. A month ago, I think folks viewed it as 70-30 in favor of being extended, and maybe now it's 40-60. So I think the expectation is that ultimately there, there will be support, um, but uh, given some of the other priorities right now for, for Congress, that the, the likelihood that it uh, gets delayed uh, is higher than it was a few weeks ago. United shares are up nearly 8%. They're one of the best performers in the sector, Joe. Is their ability to reach deals with their pilots uh, some, the kind of news event that could make it less likely that it's the, the Treasury who steps up with more aid for the sector? In other words, what happens if they have to figure it out on their own? You know, can they figure it out? Or, you know, are, they, are the warnings, you know, 
a political move or are there really this many jobs on the line? If, if there's no further aid, what happens, do you think? No, I think if there, if there isn't further aid provided, then there will need to be a right-sizing of, uh, of the workforce to accommodate kind of the, the new demand environment or that uh, pilots and other uh, labor groups will have to accept, you know, inferior economics compared to their current contract. Um, I, I, I do think that's, that's reality, uh, that when airlines think about what their schedule for next summer is going to look like, uh, it's probably going to be fewer airplanes, and that's, that's going to require uh, fewer pilots or pilots who are uh, less well compensated. I think, I think that's the expectation. One final question to you, Joe, is who would you recommend in the sector? Who's best positioned and what happens to a name like American that I would assume is not going to be your answer here and has among the biggest debt loads? Yeah, we like Delta. I think they provide a good combination of quality with, uh, with beta. Um, and, you know, our thesis for the last few years has been the, the business that airlines have selling miles to credit card companies is an underappreciated one, and they have uh, one of the best businesses, if not the best business, doing that. And so we think that's an asset that on the other side of this is going to be much more important to investors than it was pre-COVID, um, and that supports kind of evaluation argument for this group. But the question is, when does the next cycle begin? And, and that's obviously very, very sensitive to, uh, to COVID and when folks uh, feel safe and are allowed to start traveling normally again. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think uh, Delta yeah. is, is our, uh, our topic. And, Phil, finally, before we go, the airlines are not a, that popular a group with the American public, despite their ubiquity. But I guess you could right. say the same about the post office and cable companies. So, you know, whatever happens, if Joe's right that they, they could be facing major pay cuts, major layoffs, sure. do you think seeing that pain will change the way that Americans view the airlines, make them more likely to, to try to step in and help? Or are they going to, you think, say, you know what, you guys figure this out here? No, I don't think that that changes, uh, given how people feel about the airlines. Look, it comes down to this. Either Washington decides we're going to pay for those employees who would otherwise be furloughed on Thursday in order to ensure that they are there in case there is a ramp up come early next year, or Washington decides, no, we're not going to do that. And, you know, Joe thinks that they can still work out a deal by Thursday. I think a lot of people hope that a deal is worked out. One last thing, Kelly, to keep in mind. We are in... Two months here, September and October, two months that are generally not terribly busy for the airlines. And then you have Thanksgiving and Christmas. Now, that's one of the, the, the hmm. benchmark seasons that the airlines need. If they don't have a surge in traffic because there has been a resurgence in COVID-19 or there's lockdowns around the country, that's terrible news. Because what comes after the holidays? The worst quarter of the year for the airline industry, the first quarter. So a lot of this depends on what happens with COVID-19. If it spikes up and we see a drop in traffic, that is not good news for the airlines over the next six months. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, thank you both. Uh, Phil LeBeau, Joe Donardi, greatly appreciate it. Such a consequential week for these companies. And still ahead, after a year-long battle, Uber is riding again in London. What uh, the outcome could mean for its battle in California, we will explore. Plus, it's been a massive year for IPOs, and the Renaissance IPO ETF is up 65%. This week, the IPO love continues with some highly anticipated names on deck. We've got a rundown of what's ahead right after this.
But wait, there's more. The Exchange is also a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a check on markets right now, which are pretty much near session highs. The Dow's up 517 points. That's nearly a 2% gain, and the Dow is the outperformer relative to the S&P and the NASDAQ today. In terms of the sectors, they're all in the green today, and the leadership is energy, financials, and industrial. So we're back to that pack uh, leading the way instead of the tech-heavy trade. Here are some of the individual movers that we're watching this hour. We're going to start with Snap, moving higher after Guggenheim raised it to a buy from neutral and upped its price target to 28 bucks. Snap is up 4% today. And Virgin Galactic soaring after getting two bullish initiations. Both Susquehanna and Bank of America giving it a buy rating. B of A putting a $35 price target on the shares, which are under 20 right now, meaning it could almost double right uh, here. By the way, I should mention they're almost at $20 because they're up 21% on this session. So when they made the call, it was really a true double. And there's Boeing and General Electric both moving higher. This comes after GE announced its aviation unit got regulatory approval for a new engine that will power the new Boeing 777X. So as Marion Montaigne mentioned at the top of the show, better news flow for Boeing has certainly helped the broader markets. Let's turn now to the IPO market where appetite has been huge this year. And perhaps no wonder the Renaissance IPO ETF is up more than 67% so far since January. This month alone, we've seen 27 IPOs and it's a banner week ahead. For more, let's bring in Bob Bassani. Bob? Hello, Kelly. You know, it has been a very busy week for new issues. We've got nearly a dozen coming, including two direct listings. This from data management firm Palantir and work management platform Asana. That's this week. But also, there's a very large China IPO, and they're not going away. Chindata Group Holdings, which is a China data center operator, believe it or not, they plan to raise $500 million. That's the biggest IPO of the week. In fact, they have nearly $5 billion market cap. There's even a sort of conventional IPO, Academy Sports and Outdoors. This is a sporting goods company. They're raising $250 million at a roughly $1.5 billion market cap. So the market GDs are all aligned for IPOs. They're riding a wave of recent good news. So why the interest? A lot of the recent IPOs have been able to take advantage of areas that would benefit from the COVID epidemic, rather perversely, but they're heavily weighted towards tech and biotech. And recent IPOs tied to the work from home story 
have dramatically outperformed the overall market. Look, it's been a choppy September, but despite this choppy September, recent IPOs tied to that work from home story, the Zooms, the Data Dogs, the Pelotons, the CrowdStrike, they've continued to outperform dramatically, even with the S&P 500 down 5% for the month. You mentioned the IPO ETF up 68% this year. Kelly, it's now just crossed $200 million in assets under management. That is a sign that you're getting institutional investors starting to put serious money. When you get over $200 million, that's a sign the institutions are starting to take some interest. Kelly, back to you. Wow. Thank you very much, Bob, and we'll watch for the, all the action this week, see if that kind of confirms the trend or not. Meantime, let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update at this hour. Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says President Trump's personally guaranteed debts, as reported in the New York Times story about his tax returns, pose a risk to national security. Take a listen. All right, apparently we don't have that soundbite, so we'll just continue. A fourth U.S. judge has blocked the U.S. Postal Service from implementing changes that could disrupt mail-in voting before the November election. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has been criticized for operational changes that have resulted in delayed mail deliveries in recent months. He's already put those changes on hold. And Brazil's largest city in the Amazon is shutting down bars, banning parties and limiting shopping hours in an effort to contain a recent surge in COVID-19 cases. Local researchers had suggested that city had reached herd immunity. And Kelly, before I toss it back to you, uh, the Speaker of the House in that soundbite said we take an oath to protect and defend. The president is the commander in chief. He has exposure to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars to whom the public has a right to know. So that's paraphrasing what she had to say just a little bit earlier. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very, very much. Sue Herrera with the latest for us. Coming up, the government losing its case against TikTok, Netflix's pricing power, San Francisco's hot, hot housing market cools, and is it bah humbug from mall Santas? All of that is ahead in rapid fire. Don't go anywhere. We're back in two. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Brian Sullivan, Dear Jabosa, and Dom Chu. And it's good to see all of you, even though I'm seeing you a little different this time. All right, first up, a judge has blocked an order from the Trump administration that would have blocked TikTok from being downloaded from U.S. app stores. The decision a huge victory for TikTok after it challenged the ban, calling it unconstitutional and a violation of due process. Deirdre, a lot of people are focused on the basis of the judge's decision here and what that leaves open for the Trump administration to do next. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole process has been one confusing large saga. We're still fighting over details. ByteDance saying that TikTok Global will still be 80% owned by ByteDance. Of course, Oracle saying that it won't. It will mostly be held by Americans. The big question, though, in all of this, Kelly, especially when over the weekend we were on the brink of having those downloads banned, is that does this order, this executive order, actually result in more youth downloading VPNs, for example, and pushing TikTok to the underground, essentially creating a whole new host 
of security issues. I think that that is an important consideration for the Trump administration when they look at such a move. VPNs come with their whole other host of security issues. Uh, so is that is that what is yeah. the outcome from here if we reach that November deadline? But Dom, I mean, I don't think TikTok is ever going to be a major player. I mean, they granted already are, but if you got to use a VPN, you know, they're not going to get people like me, the moms, right? Like the whole, you know, it, you might be able to figure it out if it's really important to you, but you're not, you're not going to get the mainstream. No, I, I, I kind of figure if you put up a hurdle or a speed bump, like saying that some user has to set up a virtual private network, uh, their own yeah. little kind of device network in order just to run this particular app, I'm not sure how many people are going to go through the effort. Now, this is by no means commentary on the popularity of TikTok. We know that it's very, very popular. I don't know whether or not you can actually say that this is going to be a step that they can take that would actually solve all of these problems. I go back to the original reasons why this is even being contended right now. It's because of the security issues. I'm not sure anything that happens here with this deal, regardless of the decision by this court, really solves any of the fundamental security issues that were at issue before this whole thing happened. So unless the deal changes in some format, I don't know if there's any reason why you'd want to get behind it if you were the Trump administration. Brian, what would you be focused on? I don't understand why we're so focused on TikTok in general, I guess. What I'd be focused on is something else. Is that semiconductor export ban? I mean, that's a real business. The biggest semiconductor maker in the world, SMIC, we're posing new restrictions on exports to that company, effectively trying to damage their business. One-fourth of their customers and one-third of their suppliers are in the United States as well. That story there, that SMIC export thing, I know TikTok is sexier, yeah. it's flashy, it's new and shiny, no, but, listen. but it didn't even exist a few years ago, Kelly, to your point. It may not exist in a few years. Social media companies tend to come and go in some respects. I think, I think the, the bigger <laughs> escalation is on that semiconductor side. Oh, you're 100% no right. Way, However, gotta, and Deirdre, I, I'll go back to you for a final, final last word on this. The, Senator Cruz this morning was on Squawk Box talking about how TikTok can read your email, access your information, do all of this stuff. Yeah. Now, we know that data privacy yeah. is where this all started. So even though it's a silly app, Deirdre, is it a stalking horse that has security implications? I mean, I deleted it off my phone because I was like, I was just was messing around with this. I certainly don't want it if I, if I barely even use it. What do you think? Well, okay, so Oracle, the Oracle-Walmart partnership may solve the data storage part of this, but the far more important question, at least to me, is the question of that source code, the algorithm. That determines what we see in the app, whether that's propaganda or censorships, and that can be a very powerful tool in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. So I agree that it's an important security threat, but I am also sort of with you guys, with Dom, in saying that this plan solves absolutely nothing that very little of what was being called a security yeah, concern it, in the first you, place. And the last thing I'll say about I, VPNs, I used one for many years in China. It's not that hard. And if this is really the start of the tech cold war, there are going to be many other apps that we're going to have to access through well, VPNs. It'll become normal like it is in China. As, as usual, D Bosa gets an A plus for, because number one, it's that algorithm. You could push whatever you wanted to onto the 14-year-old the minds of America, whatever you know, is sort of, they make it trending. They decide what we watch in the most part, and they could literally just broadcast hundreds of millions of views of something, whatever it is. And to Deirdre's point as well, guys, I don't know if I've been to China. I know Deirdre lived there. I don't know if you guys have been to China. You can't just use Twitter. 
They, they block all of almost everything we try to do. Facebook, Google, Twitter. I don't understand why this is an issue. Uh, well, we got to move on, unfortunately. But I, and Brian, I do think you're right to say that SMIC is getting underplayed. That's a, a huge move as well. But let's talk some Uber. Uh, the company was just granted an 18-month license to operate in London after the city's transport regulator had banned it last year for the second time in three years. So now they're saying, well, all right, you can get an 18-month license. The Association for London Taxi Drivers called this decision, quote, a disaster for London, saying it seems Uber is too big to regulate effectively, but too big to fail. Dom, the shares are up 3.5% today. What do you make of it? Big victory. I mean, obviously this is going to be appealed every, every which way you can possibly think of, but this was one of those key jurisdictions around the world that was threatening the Uber business model overall let alone what's happening here in the United States with California and some of these kind of work arrangements and how do you classify employees. This was simply an issue about whether or not there was a safety issue for riders in the city of London about riding in these Ubers. And this particular decision takes a little bit of that away. I don't know whether or not the business model can be sustained even with this particular ruling if the COVID-19 restrictions are staying in place there. And the UK, remember, is clamping down pretty hard, much more so than the US in certain areas. They're even really looking at the bar scene all over again and saying, you know, maybe you guys aren't exempt from kind of the restrictions we're putting out there for restaurants. So this Uber decision, it's big, but there's a reason why the stock is up three and a half percent when everything else is up as well today. They still need a lot more. Deirdre? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I think that this is a victory, but it is hugely minimized by the state of ride sharing, as Dom said. And we also know that Uber has spent a lot of money, a lot of horsepower trying to pivot the business towards food delivery. London, a very important market, but guess what? So is Los Angeles. So is San Francisco. And in this market in California, they are facing the prospect of having to treat their employees as their drivers, excuse me, as employees, which is hugely disruptive to the business model. And Uber and Lyft, of course, we should mention some other gig economy companies saying that it may not even be worth it to operate in California if that happens. Kelly, by the way, Prop 22, now the most expensive ballot measure that California has ever seen. So the bigger wow. fight is over here. Bri, last word. Listen, you lived in London, Kelly. Those, those taxi drivers spent three years passing the knowledge, one of the hardest tests. They basically got to do it blindfolded. I'm, I'm being facetious there, but you get my point. No, it's I don't true. know if it's right or wrong, but you just hope that people who work that hard to maintain their living can, if there is, as, lo as, as long as Uber creates excess demand for car-based transportation, everybody can win. The loser will be taxes, of course, on the tube. But if it's a, if it's a zero static demand, then everybody's going to kind of just lose. Uber won't win. The taxi drivers won't win and the, and the tube won't win. Yeah. Well, all right. I, I agree with you. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing what they have to go through. Uh, but anyway, let's talk some Netflix today. Jeffrey's raising its price target, saying it believes a potential price hike is on the horizon. The analyst saying an increase could add up to a billion dollars in revenue next year with limited churn, meaning limited cancellations in the international markets. He says Netflix has outside outsized pricing power versus competitors. The shares are up about 50 percent year to date, but still off 13 percent from their all time high earlier this month. Brian, I'll go to you. Do you think Netflix has the pricing power and should do price hikes? I, I think Netflix does. I don't know how this will trick trickle out through the rest of the industry. Listen, every time Netflix announces a price hike, you know, you got people on social media like I'm deleting Netflix and then they never do. And the company makes more money. <laughs> I think, the, I think the biggest challenge 
is going to be, these bills, by the way, are starting to add up. If you use Hulu Live with advanced yes. DVR, it's $70 a month. Then you factor in an ESPN Plus or a Disney Plus. You factor in, of course, Peacock, which is the best of all of them, is free, guys. I thought I'd just throw that out there. <laughs> Company man, Brian Sullivan. Dom, what do you think? So here's what I, 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 I kind of feel what Brian is saying here, because I looked at our streaming bill. And it is getting to be out of hand. Uh, we, we kind of bolted on all these little kind of services. And right now, you might as well put me in a cable bundle for how much I'm spending on things like Hulu and Disney Plus and Netflix and Amazon Prime. I don't really throw in there because I use it more for the free shipping aspect than for the videos. But you kind of get my drift. I'm spending a lot of money on these things. But I would say this. I, it, I, have, I started off, I believe, on our household paying about like $12.99 or something like that a month for Netflix. I'm up to paying about $16, $17 right now, so I've sustained those price hikes. I still haven't canceled it yet, but if it gets to like 20 bucks, I might just say, you know what, I'm done. Well, Peacock is, it, it of course, be, NBC's not version. Be, Deirdre, what would you say? Well, I was going to say that Brian Sullivan is such a selling Sunset fan, he would never get rid of his Netflix subscription. But for perhaps newer user growth, this is where it matters, right? In a landscape that, as Dom says, is becoming increasingly competitive and crowded. And remember, too, that Netflix is going to be light on content very soon. How does this affect not just the existing Netflix users, but overall growth, the new users that are coming in that perhaps are already paying for other services, other subscriptions to can, can I just throw other over-the-top TV bundles. One quick, one quick, I, I, this makes me reminisce. I think, you know, it'll be a fun segment, Kelly, down the road. All of us get back together virtually, and we've got to tell the audience what the last DVD is that we ever rented through Netflix. Not streaming. <laughs> what, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way I can look back on my history. I'd love to know what the last DVD I ever rented was. How about Blockbuster? Probably like Lord of the Rings. I think I have a Blockbuster on If they haven't tweeted at us in 30 seconds after you say that, I agree. Let's Netflix get on it. Let's all do it. We'll revisit this one week from today. Might be our history. We don't have time to get to Mole Santa today, guys. Deirdre Bose is going to be a Keanu Reeves movie. Quickly before we go. This one is just for Deirdre's sake. San Francisco's housing inventory is sitting at its highest level in years as people are fleeing the city. Take a look at this tweet from Double Line's Jeff Gunlock. He says, Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, and Ben Shapiro, to name just a few, are leaving California to escape incompetent governance. The response from Sacramento, wealth and massive income tax increases on the job creators, a.k.a. the wealthy. He says, should I align with three smart guys or Sacramento? Hmm. Meanwhile, a new piece on CNBC.com shows that homes in the Bay Area are still selling. They're just sitting on the market for longer, Deirdre, and not receiving as many bids as they would in years past. Kelly, I will just quote one of our producers in the San Francisco Bureau, uh, Laura Batchelor. She said, there used to be about three crappy apartments to choose from. Now there are 10. So it is cooling in that sense. <laughs> I think it's going to take a little bit longer, but certainly you see it in the city as well. You see far more moving trucks, as I know you guys do as well, in New York City. This is going to take time, but certainly there is this cooling that I think everyone in San Francisco, many people who at least live in the heart of San Francisco, have seen happen over the last few months. A needed reset, Dom, or is it game over? Needed reset. I, I, I'm a born and bred, born and raised California native from the Bay Area, from the East Bay Area. It, it, the, the whole place, when I go back to visit pre-COVID, looks completely different than the, than the area I grew up with when I, you know, you know, earlier in my life. It, it, it's just gotten so expensive. It's gotten so exorbitant. It's gotten so luxurious in certain places. 
And it, it just it, it needs a bit of a, a reset. I, I think people have to be able to afford to live there. And this might just be a cooling of the jets that the whole market needs out in Northern California. All right. Well, this has been a fun rapid fire work from home edition. <laughs> Brian Sullivan, Deirdre Bosa, Dominic Chu. Thank you all very, very much. Still ahead, speaking of California, there's a new wildfire breaking out that's threatening Napa and Sonoma. We're going to have the latest and the impact on the wineries out there next. The exchange is back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. We've got some news on General Motors. Phil LeBeau here with the details. Phil? Hey, Kelly, General Motors announcing that it will be investing $71 million in two plants in Ohio, putting $39 million into its Toledo transmission plant and an additional $32 million into the Defiance casting plant. That will bring 240 additional jobs to Ohio for General Motors. And there you see shares of GM once again trading under $30 a share, but up today a little under 2%. Kelly, back to you. Phil, thank you very much. Now, after last month's wildfires, there is a new one blazing out in California. It's called the Glass Fire, and it's threatening neighborhoods and vineyards in wine country, which is a key part of the local economy. Aditi Roy is here with the latest for us. Aditi? Hi, Kelly. Just when folks in wine country have been recovering from that last round of wildfires, another one hits. This one is called the Glass Incident. It involves three fires that started yesterday and just exploded overnight. It has scorched 11,000 acres, now threatening more than 8,500 structures in Napa and Sonoma counties. The famed Meadowwood Resort has been evacuated, and also 140 wineries in Napa County alone have been evacuated, as more than 1,500 people have been urged or ordered to flee the fire zone. One winery that's already burned down is Chateau Boswell. The devastating pictures show the flames just tearing through the building there. It has been a rough year, Kelly, for Northern California wineries. They've already lost business from the pandemic. And now wildfires are prompting a lot of wineries to decide to skip the harvest because of the fear of smoke-tainted grapes. But the co-owner of Trombetta Family Wines tells us making that tough decision to not produce wine this year, well, that comes with its own risks. When you've built loyalty with your customers and they can't find your wine, the danger is that they go and they say, well, okay, I'll have to try something else, and they may not come back. And so that's, that's also a big risk. Kelly, most grape growers are having their grapes tested for smoke taint, and that was before this latest round of wildfires. Back to you. What a nightmare. Aditi, appreciate it very much. You wish them all the best. Aditi Roy. Coming up, there is a hot new investing app out there, and Halftime Report's Josh Brown has called it his favorite investing app on earth. What could it be? We're going to talk to the creator next. And Delivering Alpha is back for its 10th year this Wednesday. Joining us are Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Schwartzman, Mary Erdos, Carla Harris, Tramath Palahapatiya, and more. Visit DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more and register. We're back right after this. Sox 
stocks are on pace to break their four-week losing streak amid ongoing volatility, continued economic uncertainty, and just 36 days until the presidential election. So as investors seek clarity, one app has gone through the painstaking task of compiling the information that CNBC halftime report Josh Brown calls the most bang for your buck. The Borsa Earnings Call app allows users free access to over 15,000 earnings calls from more than 2,100 publicly traded companies. For more, let's bring in the founder of the app, Hadi Youssef. Hadi, it's great to have you. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's something that seems so mundane, but our, I know everyone in our audience who has tried to listen to an earnings call knows how frustrating it is. You're trying to find these investor relations pages with a link that's buried somewhere. It's so complex. You want it to be the Spotify for earnings calls. How's it going so far? Yeah, I mean, this all started, you know, five years ago. I was in college at the time. I had some high school graduation money and wanted to invest. And I had always really been interested in learning about companies. You know, what makes one company better than the other? Why, do one, why does one company succeed while another one doesn't? So I would read news articles, maybe the random analyst report that I can find. And I would see references to an earnings call. At the time, I didn't really know what an earnings call was or had never really heard of it. But eventually, I kept seeing references to it enough to where I eventually found one and listened to one. And I immediately recognized the tremendous value that you have when you can listen to the voice and tone of a management team on an earnings call and the world of a difference it makes when you're just trying to understand what a company is about. And so I set out for the past you know, three, four, five years uh, trying to make listening to earnings calls as easy as listening to a podcast. You know, around that time, five years yeah. ago, I had really gotten into podcasts. And so that was our goal, to make listening to earnings calls as easy as listening to a podcast. And like I said, we are all grateful for it. It's, I know Jim Cramer talks about it all the time. It's one of my personal favorite things, but it's really hard to do. So a, a big thank you from the investor community. Here's a key question, though, as we start to think about the growth and the effort that goes into this. How do you make money? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a key question that I'm always wondering about. You know, our first goal was to test the notion that do people want to listen to earnings calls? You know, at, at the time, I thought, was I the only weirdo out there who wanted to listen to these things? Or were these news articles enough? And so over the course of the past three, four, five years, I've been shadowing, interviewing, meeting with directors of investor relations departments, all about understanding how can we make their jobs easier? And what I learned was their whole notion is telling a narrative, telling a story about their stock. And anything we can do to deliver that message directly to the investors, and it's not just investors, by the way, it's employees, analysts, reporters, you know, it's yeah. a, there's a whole slew of cohorts of people that want to listen to this stuff. And so working directly with the investor relations departments is a key partnership for us down the road. Hadi, here's my sort of final question for you as well. Um, you know, is this something that the companies, is it, look, they want to share their narrative, um, but they might in some cases not want that information to be out there and to be available. So, you know, what happens if you face pushback? And would you consider selling out to a, a bigger firm who says, you know, we just love what you're doing. We'll kind of bolt it on as an offering uh, and, and you can come join us. I mean, to me, Kelly, if a company is being hesitant or doesn't necessarily provide a lot of transparency to the people who have put in their hard-earned savings into these companies, then that alone should raise a red flag. And I mean, these companies are already publishing these earnings calls. And so the, the sentiment and the way the management team 
uh, uh, communicates and treats their investor base is already out there. And we're just making it easier for those investors to learn about those companies. Yeah. Well, uh, there's free versions, there's premium versions. I know you guys are trying to figure it out. But again, we're thrilled to see what you're doing. And um, thanks to Josh Brown for bringing it to everybody's attention as well. Hadi Yusuf, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Kelly. And that does it for the exchange today. Stick around for Power Lunch. Fun Strats Tom Lee joins us to talk about why he thinks investors are too bearish right now and that it's still time to buy stocks. I'll join Tyler Matheson and Dom Chu after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.